This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa, and you can find us on 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band. That's if you are in Southern Africa. You can also stream us. It is channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with Amanda Machaka, Wusani Matebula, and Musibudi Makura. Let's take a look at your top stories. A coalition of Malawi's human rights defenders postpones planned demonstrations aimed at forcing President Peter Mutarika to resign. The mooted media accreditation fees in Mozambique reportedly put on hold pending the consultation process. In economics, an Ethiopian commercial ship docks in an Eritrean port for the first time in two decades. And in sports, the Nigerian Football Federation bans its own coach. Amanda Machaka has your news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. Three firefighters have died in a blaze at the high-rise Bank of Lisbon building in the Johannesburg CBD used by two South African Gauteng government departments. Authorities said earlier that one firefighter had been killed. Gauteng MEC for Infrastructure Development Jacob Mamabulo has just addressed the media in the CBD. Mamabulo says 13 employees who were in the building have been taken to hospital. We have got, this has just been updated, that there are currently three members of the City of Jobek Fire Department, the firefighters who have lost their lives. We are working with the emergency services to verify the numbers and to confirm. And once we have received a final report and the building has been completely cleared, we will make further updates on the number, if indeed is three and on behalf of the provincial government we really would like to convey our sincere condolences to their families Mama Bulo says the building does not comply with safety regulations. This comes after Union Nehau said its members employed in the building had been raising safety issues for years. Mama Bulo cites a recent incident. We have found that the building was not compliant with the basic regulations and the laws of this country on safety and health as the law requires. So that is what our report, which we have commissioned, indicate the building was not compliant. And it actually says the building was uh, about 21, 21% is what was the level of compliance. Ideally, the building should be above 85% in order for people to be in it. South Africa's Western Cape Forensic Pathology Services say they have retrieved the remains of all the victims who died in Monday's explosion at the rain metal denial munitions plant in Somerset West. They say initial indications are that eight people died in the blast. However, the company is refuting this figure, saying they cannot confirm the number of fatalities. Forensic Pathology Services Professor Johan Dempers says the process is expected to be completed next week. 
So those remains are in the forensic mortuary as mandated by law. We are examining the remains. Currently, my team is actually collecting specimens for DNA matching. So really important, the identity, and to be able to tell the family uh, if we find uh, remains, whether that is actually part of their family member. So we're doing that at the moment. Kenyan police have raided the African headquarters of the China Global Television Network, briefly detaining several journalists as part of an ongoing crackdown against illegal immigrants. Cell phone footage of the raid showed armed, plain-clothed police bundling Chinese staff into vehicles while demanding that reporters of other nationalities produce their passports or accompany them to the police station. Kenyan Police Chief Joseph Boynet confirmed the raid on the office in search of illegal immigrants. Kenya last month began hunting down and arresting those who are in the country illegally. Last week, the Interior Ministry released a hotline number for members of the public to report illegal immigrants. Amnesty International says this approach is likely to ignite xenophobia against foreign workers, refugees and asylum seekers. Rwanda's ruling RPF has won the parliamentary elections as expected. Both opposition political parties and observers have commended the election process. Over 500 candidates vied for the 80 seats in parliament on Monday. Government critique the Green Party of Rwanda has for the first time made it to parliament. Party President Frank Habineza. Yes, we are very glad uh, that we have made it uh, at the Rwandan parliament. Uh, it's a big achievement for our party and for Rwandan democracy. Uh, we expected uh, much more than that, of course. Uh, uh, we are pleased with what we have uh, achieved. But, uh, we are going to respect our uh, promises, our campaign pledges, and we are going to work in collaboration with other political parties or organizations within parliament. And finally, Russia has again denied any involvement in the poisoning of former spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in the UK. Prosecutors in Britain say they have sufficient evidence to charge two Russian nationals over the attempted murder of the two in March. They are said to have spread the NEV agent Novichok on Skripal's front door. The Russian Foreign Ministry has released a statement saying accusations against the two Russians amount to information manipulation. The BBC's Jonathan Marcus looks at the wider implications of this recent development. We're going to hear from the British Prime Minister later in the day. She'll be making a statement to the House of Commons. I think there is going to be a renewed effort to try and get other countries to step up sanctions against Russia. We know that many of Britain's NATO allies and other Western countries did impose very swift sanctions when the evidence, the initial evidence, was presented to them. We know, too, that a congressional process is going through in the United States, so there will probably be additional sanctions levelled by the Americans. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. This is Africa Digest.
Thank you very much, Amanda, for the news update. Your time is 17.07 Central African time. Let's start in Malawi, where a coalition of human rights defenders has postponed its planned Friday demonstrations aimed at forcing President Peter Muterika to resign. The human rights activists who had been backing off the mother body of religious organizations called Public Affairs Committee and opposition parties said the change has been made in the interest of peace, unity and cooperation because the ruling Democratic Progressive Party supporters have an event in Blantyre on the day of the scheduled protest. But as Judge Mohango reports, government claims that it has dealt with challenges in question. Despite change in the dates, human rights activists say councils for Ilongwe, Blantyre, Zomba and Mzuzu have been notified of the first phase of demonstrations. The defenders are on record to have been accusing Ilongwe and Blantyre city councils of frustrating demonstrations which were initially scheduled for Friday this week. Gift Trappens, who is coordinating the whole demonstration, said they wrote the two councils informing them that they wanted to hold demonstrations but expressed surprise that they are not getting any response. He added that Blanta City Council and the Democratic Progressive Party have organized an event on September 7 to deter people from participating in the demonstrations. that members of the human rights defenders would like to hold demonstrations following government's failure to respond convincingly to issues raised in a petition that delivered during the April 27 demonstrations. The public has these observations as well. We have been talking about corruption and even the DBB-led government has been preaching about uh, combating corruption. How come such huge sum, uh, uh, such huge amount of money was paid into the party's account. We as the youth, we are very angry as the youth in this country we will see what to do because there are so many ways of expressing our anger uh, other than just making such calls. We can mobilize ourselves, we can go on the streets until the party or government adheres to our cause. We have also demanded from pioneer investment to refund that money back to the people of Malawi because that money was fraudulently gotten through a dubious contract at, at police. The civil society organizations are also concerned with levels of corruption and abuse of state resources, fuel embezzlement at the National Oil Company of Malawi and Electricity Supply Corporation of Malawi, ESCOM. They also want 145 million Malawi kwacha, which pioneer investments donated to the Democratic Progressive Party, DBP, to be returned to the government account. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. 
The controversial media accreditation fees in Mozambique have reportedly been put on hold pending the consultation process. The Southeast African country was set to introduce new rules that would require foreign journalists to pay exorbitant amounts of money in order to be allowed to report in the country. The new fees have been widely criticized with human rights organizations calling them outrageous, saying they will keep news media from reporting on Mozambique. The government has defended the fees as a response to market circumstances and the need to impose a discipline on the medium. Our Mozambican correspondent, Bright Sonjera, has this one. The uh, process is short because uh, only the minister, uh, as you, you know that in Mozambique we don't have a minister of information, but we have uh, office of information. Uh, they've just uh, introduced that fee, uh, fees without consulting the government, even the, uh, the ministers. So even the uh, member of parliament in the parliament house, uh, they did not um, send that, uh, that uh, news to the in the parliament. So what has happened is that uh, some organizations uh, like the Institute for Journalism and uh, other departments uh, working uh, with journalism, uh, jo- uh, jo- uh, journalists here in Mo- uh, Mozambique said that the fees will destroy and will stop the journalists uh, to make their practices of working as a journalist here in the country. Uh, this is a crisis because last year they did the same. Uh, they have introduced uh, the new uh, fee for the registration, that is uh, community radio stations, the newspapers, the new fee. Uh, it was uh, and like uh, 20% of the uh, current uh, amount that they were paying at that time. But this year, one of the uh, uh, officers from um, of, uh, information office, uh, Emilia Moyane, is the one who said that uh, we need to help the government to find the funds from media houses and uh, newspapers so that we can introduce uh, this amount, a lot of money to to be as a fee fee for the year. When is government uh, planning to introduce uh, this fee, Bright? The government is not planning to do uh, to introduce that price. It was just a, a person who said that, not the government. The government said uh, under the, the minister that uh, discussed about that, they said that this news was just like a rumor, like something which was not uh, being supported by the government. Because whatever they do, even the fees whatsoever, the government have to discuss themselves and then inform the people who are working with journalists, the Office of uh, Information, so that from there is when they say that the ministers have been discussing ABCD so that the fee will be ABCD. What has been the attitude of government uh, bright towards the media in the country? Has government um, been hostile towards news media? The government did not say anything about that issue because they did not know that they are going to introduce that. You know, this, the consultation before, before they have to say something, have to consult the government and tell the people what will happen. But the government did not 
not discuss about that because it was not well researchable. The Office of Information has just said that they will be doing that. You know that the one, the head of that uh, Office of Information is uh, Emilia Moyani. And Moyani is the one elected by the government to be uh, in that office because, uh, uh, because of the uh, work that they did through the elections of 2014, and then they elected her to, uh, to represent the media. He was coming from the uh, public television. So uh, she was coming from a public television, and now she is the head uh, of uh, uh, Office of, of Information. So this, this news was just come out like a bomb, without knowing other people where, who are working with her. So government did not comment on that, and they did not uh, discuss about that. Bright Sonjera is our correspondent in Mozambique, and he was in conversation there with Kumbero Munjarere. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month conversations. It is 17.16 Central African Time right on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Let's go to Rwanda now where the ruling party RPF has won the parliamentary elections as expected. Both opposition political parties and observers have commended the election process. Over 500 candidates have vied for the 80 seats in parliament on Monday as Sylvanas Karamere reports from Kigali. The voting process began on Sunday with youth representatives elected for one position to the parliament. Over 500 candidates had filed 80 seats, of which 24 were competed for by women as stipulated in the Rwanda's constitution. But last night, the chairman of the electoral commission here, Professor Karisa Mbanda, made it clear the ruling RPF had won with the majority in the parliament. PL, The Liberal Party has got 70%, RPF got 74%, the Democratic Green Party of Rwanda got 5%, PSD got 90%, while the PSMB Lakuti Party got 5% out of all valid votes. The Liberal Party has therefore got four seats out of eight seats in the parliament. The RPF has got 40 out of eight seats in the parliament. The Green Party of Rwanda has got two seats in the parliament. PSD has got five, and the Imbiakuli party has got two seats. Please note that these are provisional results. Zero, However, none of the other four independent candidates has made it to 5% of the results that could allow them to secure the seat in the parliament. For the first time, the Green Party of Rwanda, that has been a critic to the government, has finally made it to the parliament. Its president, Frank Habineza, speaking shortly after the results, had this to say. Yes, we are very glad uh, that we have made it uh, at the Rwandan parliament. 
Uh, it's a big achievement for our party and for Rwandan democracy. Uh, we expected uh, much more than that, of course. Uh, but we are pleased with what we have uh, achieved. But, uh, we are going to respect our uh, promises, our campaign pledges. Uh, we are going to work in collaboration with other political parties or organizations within Parliament to see that uh, our pledges uh, can be uh, made into laws can help to approve the lives of Rwandans. Um, so among the key pages was the issue of uh, uh, revising the land law to make sure that uh, we can scrap the land tax and make sure that uh, land ownership uh, uh, is properly explained and the people of Rwanda can own land. Both opposition leaders and election observers from the African Union have spoken out emphasizing on the transparent manner in which the election was held. 53 seats had been competed for by the political parties as well as the four additional independent candidates, Silvanus Karimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. 1720 Central African Time. Remember that if you want to be a part of this conversation, you can do that by email. Send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. We are on Twitter as well. That is a Channel Africa one. That's our handle, Channel Africa Numerical One, if you are looking for us on Twitter. Now, Brand South Africa and the University of South Africa, that's UNISA, have partnered to host the South African Competitiveness Forum, or SACF, and the Pan-African University Dialogue, in two, which is a two-day program at UNISA on the 11th and 12th of this month. The conference will bring together academics and industry representatives from South Africa and African markets such as Ghana, Kenya, Uganda and Nigeria. This is to provide experts input on key issues that impact positively and negatively on the competitiveness and reputation of the Pan-African brand and Africa's nation brands. To talk to us more, we're now joined on the line by Brand South Africa's General Manager for Research, Dr. Petros de Kok. Hello and thank you very much for joining us. Afternoon and thanks for the invite. Um, now tell us about the need to have uh, such a forum. Yes, um, the South African Competitiveness Forum, as you indicated, it's quite a long-standing platform that we have as Brand South Africa where we, in uh, different formats, investigate different issues, you know, um, on... Uh, competitiveness, reputation uh, that impacts on South Africa. In this case, actually some background, 2016 we hosted a university dialogue with University of Pretoria and then we set out to open that discussion to a more continental platform in 2018, which is now this year. Now, just to quickly put you in the picture, we are bringing um, academics from Kenyatta University, Makerere in Uganda, uh, University of Accra in Ghana, University of Lagos and a few other places with South African academics among other things, to look at two issues. On the one hand, there's a form of schizophrenia you know, about, around reporting on the African continent. On the one hand, people write reports like African lines on the rise, like McKinsey, and then simultaneously people maintain a huge Afro-pessimism you know, sometimes in the outlook on the continent. So we want to investigate that in more detail to say, but how do we as Africans engage and more directly influence the, the narrative of the continent, especially when it comes to marketing? So that's the one element um, of the, the conference. And also at the same time then, um, we are looking at very practical interventions you know, in terms of collaboration between academic institutions, government entities like ourselves, and business you know, in terms of marketing as a discipline. Because as you know, we really need to look at are our marketing qualifications or qualifications in general actually fit to purpose to industry and to government needs. 
So we are um, looking forward to two very um, uh, packed days in terms of mm. issues that we're investigating. Uh, now, how did you decide on the universities uh, that you invited? Um, I'm assuming it's not every university in Africa. It's not every country in Africa. Yes, yes we our partnership with UNISA came about last year. They created about two years ago now what they call the Academic Collaboration Forum, which is a forum that brings together marketing discipline departments from different uh, universities in South Africa. So we then came on board to bring in um, the, the, the uh, you know, part of the, the government participation in this project. So a lot of the partners, the academic institutions, we found already active with UNISA in this forum. Um, as you indicated, unfortunately, we cannot invite all academic institutions, you know, but the view, the vision into the future is to expand it, um, not just in terms of participation, but also in terms of practical cooperation. So this year we are taking some very concrete project suggestions to the platform to say that in the next year, we're not just going to meet again next year to deliver papers. We are actually going to look at some projects to implement uh, in the following year. Mm. Um, earlier you spoke about um, the reporting on Africa, calling it a, a, a bit schizophrenic, and yet you haven't invited um, a journalism departments and departments that would be involved um, in shaping the story of Africa. You invited marketing departments and said, why? No, look, there are some communication experts where that would also be involved. You know, but as I indicated, you know, this is a network that we are building um, in time. And uh, definitely, you know, as those issues um, uh, are, need to be addressed, we will definitely involve, um, you know, people, more players in the media industry itself. And also just to give you an example of a very uh, current issue that we are putting on the table, as you know, about 44 African countries have by now signed the um, Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, including South Africa. So what we are doing in here in this forum as well is to put that on the table because that has implications for how we as individual African countries ultimately market uh, ourselves on the one hand, but also the continent, you know. In the last number of years, we've had lots of engagements with peer entities like Grand Kenya, Grand Ghana, and other entities like that on the continent, asking the question, you know, when we push um, African integration, it also has implications for how we market our countries as such. So um, that is a very important issue for us, and we look forward to the input from um, a lot of the the scholars and some of the industry players that will be joining us uh, in the conference. Your theme is interrogating the Pan-African nation brand, re- and deconstructing state capacity, and the stories we tell to market the African brand's reality. What's the reality of African brands? You know, I think we've got uh, actually a very interesting story on the African continent in the past two decades. You know, as, as you know, we we are constantly exposed. You know, to look, some of our economies have been also uh, being hit by you know slumping commodities prices, etc. But overall, for example, I'll give you a practical example. A few months ago. We had an interaction with uh, Goldman Sachs, the bank, and one thing that was indicated is that if you look at the top 100 global companies, there's not a single one of them in the last decade, and increasingly so, that do not have very specific market access plans for the African continent. So when it comes to uh, opportunity for growth and expansion from a pure business point of view, the African continent still presents major opportunities. So that's the one end, one would say, of coverage of African markets, etc., which is quite positive, which looks at opportunity for growth, middle class expansion, etc. 
But then at the same time, you know, let one thing go wrong in an African country and you get the very typical reporting, you know, on a continent that can't help itself. It's engaged in civil strife and instability, you know, policy uncertainty, these kind of things. So what we are basically agitating for is that as Africans, as African scholars and practitioners, we really need to get a handle on how do we, um, in the first instance, communicate and market our own realities. Because it starts with us. It begins with our commentary. It begins with the way we portray the reality on the continent. And I think that's where um, a lot of things can can either fail or succeed, ultimately, in terms of delaying uh, the, the image of the continent. It's not always easy, but I do think we need to understand that as a continent, We've got a tremendous opportunity yet, you know, I think in the coming decades as the global economy changes to really position ourselves, you know, mm. as a viable and vibrant uh, environment on our own terms. And I think we must be unapologetic about things like empowerment. We must mm. be unapologetic about how we attract investment and conditions we set for that. Mm-hmm. Here's what I say. So, um, yeah, those are some of the thoughts that we'll be uh, looking at. And finally, in retelling the African narrative, um, would you prefer that the negative narrative not be told? No, 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 no. There's nothing we need to sweep under the carpet. You know, that's not the, the intention of this. But I think we need to be very factual in how we communicate on the realities on the continent, number one, because I think there's a lot of, uh, oftentimes, you know, a lot of very um, ill-conceived and factually skewed uh, images that are presented out there. So we must be real about this. You know, we must be honest and say, look, yes, we do face the following types of challenges. However, you know, when you look at what interventions are in place to deal with some of those challenges, that's more important ultimately in terms of, um, I think, creating a more balanced uh, picture out there. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. All right, so that's Brent, South Africa's General Manager for Research, Dr. Petrus de Kock, telling us today about a forum that's planned. It's called the South African Competitive Forum, or SACF, and the Pan-African University Dialogue, which is a two-day program in UNISA, which will take place on the 11th and the 12th of this month. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. (laughs) You know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It is 17.30 Central African time. Here's Amanda Machaka with your news headlines. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Three firefighters have died in a blaze at the high-rise Bank of Lisbon building in the Johannesburg CBD in South Africa. 
South Africa's Western Cape Forensic Pathology Services say they have retrieved the remains of all the victims who died in Monday's explosion at the rain metal denial munitions plant in Somerset West. They say initial indications are that eight people died in the blast. And Rwanda's ruling RPF has won the parliamentary elections as expected. Both opposition political parties and observers have commended the election process. Those are news headlines. Seventeen thirty one Central African time. Now the South African based movement World Without Wine has launched a brand new challenge titled The Sober Spring Challenge. The initiative, which kicked off on a September one, will run until early November, challenging the public to go for about sixty six days without consuming alcohol. Janet Gurard is the founder of World Without Wine. It was inspired by the fact that we've been doing dry January for the last three years. We've been raising money for a fabulous NGO here in South Africa called Earth Child. And what was happening was people were writing to me kind of in the middle of the year and they're saying, oh, we loved dry January. We loved how we felt after a month off of alcohol. We need to do something else in the year. We don't want to wait until next January. So we're interested. So obviously we uh, put our heads together and we came up with the Sober Spring Challenge. This is like dry January on steroids, I'd say. <laughs> we take people longer than a month. It's 66 days. And we picked on that number because there's some research that says that after 66 days, you can actually change a habit permanently. Some people do want to, to ditch the drink for good, and we encourage that. The way that it works mm-hmm. is people need to go to the website, which is worldwithoutwine.com. They need to register, and the next start date is the 23rd of September, because that's Spring Equinox Day. And how it works is we send out an email every morning of the 66-day period, so it's full of tips, tools, motivations, keep people inspired and on track. And then I think more importantly than that, we do the group support. We've created a WhatsApp group and a Facebook group, So all of our challenges are on those groups and they're all talking to each other all the time and encouraging each other. It's it's really good fun. And we had a group that started on the 1st of September and uh, that was going really, really well. The groups are just buzzing away 24-7. You've rightfully noted that, you know, alcohol is quite a big problem, particularly in this part of the continent. How big of a problem are we facing when it comes to alcohol abuse, Janet? And is there a specific group that you're targeting with this 66? six days? Well, I think it's a huge problem for all walks of life. And what we're saying to people is, please just take a break from alcohol for the sake of your health. There's a big study come out just two weeks ago now, featured in in The Lancet. It's a global study. And it's really proving once and for all that any benefits that one could perceive from alcohol are far outweighed by the drawbacks. We now know, you know, that alcohol is linked to seven different types of cancer. Alcohol is a depressant. You know, people drink because they feel anxious, they feel depressed when it's the worst thing they can do. Many, many reasons just to give one's body a break, you know, at the very least. 
give your liver a holiday, we say to people. You'll feel amazing. Now, we know that your mission is not just about this specific challenge and, of course, the January one that you mentioned, but you are on a mission to sort of support and inspire a life completely without alcohol. Tell us a little bit about some of the other work that you're involved in currently and how people can engage you on that front further. Sure. Well, perhaps if I can tell you how our movement started. It started with me when it was obvious uh, about four years ago that I would have to stop drinking alcohol because it was getting me into all sorts of trouble. I did suffer from breast cancer and I think there's a bit of a link there. So I decided to stop drinking but I couldn't find the right support here in South Africa. I went to AA but it didn't really work. So then I went overseas. I found a one-day workshop in London which was fabulous. So when I returned to South Africa I decided to create my own workshop because I do have a corporate background in training and development and I wanted to help other people to stop drinking as I've been able to do. So now we run regular workshops in Cape Town, in Joburg. We're actually doing our first overseas one next month in London. We've run 27 workshops now and we're getting busier and busier. (laughs) The message is getting out there. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us, uh, Janet. And just for the benefit of our listeners, I'm sure we've got some people who are thinking to themselves, you know what, maybe I want to try this out. Can you give them some tips in terms of really some of the difficulties that one can expect to face as they try and kick the habit for that many days? Sure. Certainly on our workshops, the biggest fear is how am I going to socialize without alcohol? You know, people don't want to lose their friends and become reclusive. I think a lot of us start drinking because we just want to fit in with everybody Mm -hmm. else. So, you know, there are tips, obviously, to help with the social life. Here in South Africa, we now have a lot of alcohol-free drinks available, which taste kind of like proper drinks. We've got uh, alcohol-free gin and tonics, and we've got alcohol-free beer. And these drinks are incredibly useful, certainly in the early days of getting out there, because you don't want to draw attention to yourself. You just want Mm. to to kind of join in. So we say, you know, find a drink that works for you. For people who do want to engage and who want to be part of the 66 days, you said the next intake is on the 23rd of September. Did I get you right? Yes. Exactly. Yes. So but we encourage people to kind of register now. Great. Before they forget about it. Register today, please. Okay. So give us the website again. Worldwithoutwine.com. That's a Janet Gurand, founder of World Without Wine in South Africa, talking to Zikona. So your time is 17.37 Central African time. Remember that if you want to be a part of this conversation, you can tweet us. We are on Channel Africa One. Now, they've been described as a true champions of the fight against female genital mutilation or FGM. Some as young as eight who run away from their homes to escape FGM and later back to persuade their parents, guardians and fellow young girls to abandon the practice. The life-threatening practice is mainly carried out through the school holidays in December. It's known as a cutting season and marriage often follows. Now, a new documentary in the name of Your Daughter tells the story of the many girls in northern Tanzania risking their lives to escape FGM. The BBC's Sami Awami attended the screening of the film in Dar es Salaam and sent us this report. Filled with adrenaline-inducing moments and the raw emotions of girls going against the traditional practice, 
In the Name of Your Daughter is an uncomfortable yet eye-opening film to watch. Giselle Potnia is the film director. What I think is different about this documentary is it shows and highlights the voices of the children. And why do you think that's important? I think it's really important to put the girls' voices at the center of all this because they do have human rights. And in Tanzania especially, there is a law of the child that specifically says that children's opinions need to be heard and respected. And the children are saying we don't want to be cut. So I think the time has come to listen to the children and to understand that their rights need to be respected. It's a film about girls as young as 8 years old who have heard about FGM and how severe its effects are and have decided to run away. 12-year-old Rosie is one of the main characters. I ran away because I was already educated about FGM, so I know FGM has effects. I tried to educate my parents but they didn't want to listen to me. That's why I decided to take measures on my own and run to a safe place where I could be protected. The safe house Rose is talking about is run by Robbie Samueli, also one of the main characters in the documentary. Safe houses are very, very important as another strategy of fighting FGM in the community. What inspired you to start a safe house? I need girls to be protected during the seasonal cutting where there is a larger pressure to the community. Girls are forced to be cut and nobody who could help them. How many girls have you saved so far? In both safe houses I have saved more than 600 girls. And some people are saying safe houses are not good because they are separating these girls from their parents. What do you think about that? Safe houses are very, very important. Because during the seasonal cutting, nobody in our community can help these girls. You know, I'm coming from Korean tribe. I know them very well. Everyone is very, very active and they are supporting this cutting season. So nobody could protect any girl who will be forced with their parents to be cut. Now who is going to help them? There certainly aren't many saviors. 20 years ago, Tanzania criminalized the FGM. But even as the prevalence has reduced significantly in many parts of the country, the practice is still prevailing in some regions. According to the United Nations Population Fund Agency, one in ten women in Tanzania aged between 15 and 49 has undergone FGM. The government is working very hard to make sure female genital mutilation is eliminated. Kamara Kosmas Kamara is the district administrative secretary in Serengeti, one of the areas with a high prevalence of FGM. I asked him what the government has been doing to scale down the practice. First of all, we started by giving out education to all groups of people in the community, young people in schools, parents, but you know this practice is mainly propagated by elders in the community. So we decided to work as a team. Police officers are enforcing the law. Those we arrest, like the cutters, these are the first targets. But the parents, grandparents, and all who support this practice are our targets. Tanzania is committed to ending violence against women and children in all forms, including FGM, over the next 12 years within the framework of the 2030 Agenda on Sustainable Development. In trying to reach this goal, another one of the film's heroines, Neema Chacha, told me 
what this documentary means for girls across Tanzania. What I loved about the film is that it will educate many communities and many people to understand how violent FGM is and that no girl deserves to be cut but to be educated and help them to reach their goals. That is the BBC's Semi Awami. It is now 17.43 Central African time right here on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Now as September marks Literacy Month in South Africa, Channel Africa's Komoto Mupulane took to the streets to hear if people read for pleasure. And this is what they had to say. I used to read but now I don't read anymore. So yeah, but I feel like reading is more about pleasure than everything else. If you enjoy reading, you're going to keep on reading forever. It's just that my schedule has been a bit tight lately, but yeah. yeah. What was the last book that you read? I was Something Blue. Mm-hmm. I forgot the author. It was very nice. Though. It was very what nice. Was it, it was about this girl with the friend and they had like, it was like a love chemistry movie. It was like a rom-com actually. Ah. I'm still at work most. Oh. So that's why. I'm taxi driver, that's why that, that calls my case. That's why uh, I read on at Opera, I mean, maybe uh, which, uh, something like magazines on Opera, I mean, you know? yeah. That's why not, not, not most found something a day or in a week, there's something that I know. Academic is too much, it's so fun. So you and we can't and we can't read for pleasure. You know that this month is literacy. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, I'm not reading anything. Why not? I don't have time to read though. Always tired. Soccer practice, so I don't make time for reading though. Do you think young people read a lot? No, they don't. Why not? Lifestyle due to the new social media and stuff like that. I don't think people are reading though. It helps, it exercises the brain, so it is important. I would encourage kids to read, though. No, at this moment, I don't read something. Because uh, I'm not very well in English. I'm just trying to speak, uh, to learn English. So all books in South Africa are in English, so it's very difficult for me to, to read. So, I mean, which language would you be comfortable in reading? Uh, French language. So tu parles français? Oui, je parle très bien français. I read French book, also English book, but not more because uh, my English is not better. I just read English books to improve my English. Yeah. For little boy, reading is very good because he open their mind and he teach us, he teach them many things about the life, about how to uh, to be, how about your behavior, their behavior, everything like okay. this. It is 17.45 Central African time. Here is Usani Matebula with your economic news.
Thanks, Ms. Pumelelen. Good evening. Oil cartel OPEC says it remains confident that Libya will get back on its feet and sort out the challenges that are hampering oil production. Speaking at a media briefing in Cape Town, South Africa, OPEC General Secretary Mohamed Bakindo says Libya probably has the largest oil reserves in Africa, but he points out that oil production has decreased in that country as a result of a civil war. Uh, we remain uh, optimistic that they will finally, uh, with the help of the United Nations and the international community, overcome this dark chapter uh, in their history and continue uh, to play their role within OPEC and the global industry. The world will continue to need uh, Libyan production uh, and supply because of the supply-demand balance, uh, and therefore we look forward to welcoming them back fully into the market. Meanwhile, South Africa's Minister of Energy, Jeff Khadebe, says they will be engaging with OPEC to look at ways and options to address uh, the escalating global oil prices. Khadebe is calling for price controls and stable adjustments to the volatile Brent crude oils prices, especially as emerging market currencies continue to tumble. He has urged African energy ministers to look at improving and producing oil refineries rather than becoming net importers of refined petroleum. When the price of crude oil plunged for 115 US dollars per barrel to 28 dollars per barrel, the producer countries found themselves on the back foot, unable to ensure sustainable production of crude oil. At that time, consumer countries enjoyed that windfall. However, in a space of two years, that situation reversed rapidly and we have witnessed a rise in the crude oil price. Stability of prices makes allowance for predictability and better planning by both consumers and producers. To North Africa now, Egypt says it's uh, taking all necessary steps. Over two billion U.S. dollars, uh, the World Bank ordered it to pay to Italian-Spanish Union Fenosa Gas because of a lack of uh, gas supply to an Egyptian plant in which the company has a majority stake. A statement from Egypt's Petroleum Ministry for the first time acknowledged the decision by a World Bank arbitration body, but did not elaborate on what steps it was taking. The World Bank uh, body ordered Egypt to pay the money to Union Fenosa Gas, which is a joint venture between Spain's Gas Natural and Italy's Eni. In Zimbabwe, the people are panicking following reports of sharp price increases of basic goods, which to a larger extent have been attributed to low business confidence levels. This also resulted in the U.S. dollar to bond note exchange rate to sell. Economists say the inflationary environment would require strict measures by government to restore confidence and sanity. However, President of the Zimbabwean Retailers Association, Denford Mutashu, says the setback is temporary and will soon disappear.
What, of course, we, we, we're looking at is a situation where government also has got to curtail uh, the, the growth of money through the RTGS balances, which, which has uh, uh, continued to make sure that the economy is more liquid and uh, people have got uh, more free funds that they can now, uh, you know, direct towards, uh, you know, uh, direct consumption. So that that's basically has been a, a, a very basic, you know, economic situation, rather economic model because remember, the country has adopted the, you know, the, literally the free market economy where demand and supply have got to determine prices. Financial indicators say the dollar 10.67, Botswana Pula 10.28, Zambian Guacha, BRICS currencies. The dollar is at uh, 4.16, Brazilian Real 67.17, Russian Ruble 71.32, Indian Rupee 6.83, Chinese Yuan. And uh, the South African rand continuing its uh, free fall now at uh, 15.23 against the dollar. Commodities uh, gold 1,000. Uh, $193, platinum $775 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $77.94 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Isanis. And for sports news, here's Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, the Nigerian Football Federation has confirmed that they have banned Super Eagles coach Salusi Youssef for 12 months and fined him 5,000 US dollars for receiving cash from undercover journalists posing as agents. Now, the NFF Ethics and Fair Play Committee found Youssef guilty of accepting 1,000 US dollars after he was caught on camera being asked to select two players for the 2018 Africa Cup of Nations tournament. Now, Youssef, who has since denied any wrongdoing, has the option to appeal. The broadcaster which aired the footage says the report is part of a wider investigation into corruption in African football by the Ghanaian journalist Anas Arimewe Anas. Well, back home, Bafana Bafana goalkeeper Ronan Williams says the national team is desperate to erase all the negative vibes surrounding it when they play Libya in a 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier at the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban this coming Saturday with kickoff set for 3 p.m. Central African time. The match is the second of their qualifying campaign, which started well last year when coach Stuart Baxter guided South Africa to a 2 0 win over Nigeria in their opening game. However, things went south for Bafana Bafana as they famously missed out on a place at the World Cup finals, and Williams is determined to regain the trust of the fans. Coach said from day one, you know, all this negative negativity that's been around the team, all the bad results, you know, needs to stop. That was one of his first messages, and the boys share that sentiment. I mean, we're tired of, you know, all the negative talk surrounding us. You know, we need to start showing our quality. I mean, we've got one of the best players, a few of the best players in the, you know, in the on the continent. So we need to show it. 
On to cricket news, Proteus captain Faf Duplessis says it is important for Cricket South Africa to get the Global League T20 tournament off the ground as it could provide a platform for players who may not get the opportunity to feature in other tournaments. Duplessis was speaking at Cricket South Africa's season launch in Centurion earlier this week ahead of what will be a pre-preparation season for the 2019 Cricket World Cup. Now, SA will host Zimbabwe, Pakistan and Sri Lanka in the 2018-2019 home season and there is a gap in the domestic calendar for the tournament to take place. Duplessis says they have been informed of a meeting that will take place this weekend that will give them direction regarding the tournament. Uh, it's always great when you have an opportunity to play a lot of cricket at home um, and this season is one of those. Uh, we've got a, obviously Zim and then Pakistan and Sri Lanka so it's a nice busy one um, but one I'm re- really looking forward to that December, January, February period is, is always our favourite time of the year. Um, and we got some nice teams travelling South Africa as well. So not by making any excuse of any kinds, but there, last year was a real uh, awareness for us to try and look at different players around the country uh, with the World Cup coming up. We are looking for personalities that can handle pressure moments, and I suppose that's what a World Cup is all about. And finally, um, in golf news, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, as well as Bryson DeChambeau have all been added to the U.S. Ryder Cup team when Jim Furyk announced three captains' pick. Now, there was no surprises for Furyk as he revealed his selection earlier this week as the trio had virtually picked themselves. DeChambeau for his recent form, while Woods and, and, and Mickelson for their vast experience at the event. Yeah, I think we talked about all year. We were looking for uh, a number of different things, but players that had a good body of work, that had played good this season, uh, players that were in good form, and, you know, we're headed over to Europe. We're heading over into, uh, you know, uh, foreign soil. Uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting crowd. They're, they're boisterous. I have a lot of respect for them, and we were looking for players that we thought would, would handle that situation well and that would thrive, would love the challenge ahead of them and I think uh, in naming these three players uh, that's what we've done. Well, the U.S. will defend their cup at the event that takes place between the 28th up until the 30th of September against Europe at Le Lechonal in Paris. Fury kept praise on the trio, particularly 14 times major champion Woods, who will now relinquish his role as the vice-captain. Woods will return after missing the past two Ryder Cups with a long-standing back injury. Well, at the beginning of the year, that was one of my goals was was to to make this team. I, I got the call from from Jim, and he asked if I would serve as a vice captain. I said absolutely, um, anything to help you out. Uh, but also, deep down, I wanted to make the team. Uh, I really wanted to play on it. Now, I hadn't started playing golf really yet, uh, but still, I wanted. Still, I was, I was a goal at the end of the season is to be able to uh, to make this team. The Zaya Sports News at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
1757, recapping our top stories. A coalition of Malawi's human rights defenders postpones uh, planned demonstrations aimed at forcing President Peter Motorika to resign. The mooted media accreditation fees in Mozambique reportedly put on hold pending the consultation process. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumalele Zondi producer, Luanda Maume, technical producer, Catherine Malika, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. WhatsApp messages plus two seven seven six three hundred three three two seven plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. Tweet us on channel Africa One. We leave you with Ngumama by Jezil Brothers. <laughs>